From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today in studio, we welcome to the program Chris King. He serves as the president for the Jackson Audubon Society, so we'll have a look at birds. We'll have a lot of bird talk this hour. Also, we'll talk about the upcoming birding camp at Millsaps College. And Dr. Major is ready to take your pet questions. You can join the conversation with a phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or you can email the show, animals at mpbonline.org. You're listening to Creature Comforts from MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Today in studio, we'll welcome to the program Chris King. He serves as president for the Jackson Audubon Society, so we'll have lots of bird talk this hour. We'll also talk about the upcoming birding camp at Millsaps College. And as always, Dr. Major is on hand, ready to take your pet questions. So join the conversation with your phone call. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That phone number is one eight seven seven six seven two. 7464. You can email the show, animals at mpbonline.org. I'd like to remind you every week that if you miss Creature Comforts, all or part of it on Thursday, there is a repeat broadcast every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning. Hope that everyone is doing well this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, any upcoming events that you want to share with us, Libby? Yeah, a couple of things going on. Oh, I've, and I've got to mention the synchronous fireflies. Listeners have been getting in touch. Uh, Jeff Busby State Park is evidently glowing at night with a lot of fireflies, including the synchronous ones. Mm-hmm. And the um, Cypress Swamp turnout on the Natchez Trace just north of the reservoir. I've seen those there and just got a report this morning that some people had had um, a really good light show out there last night. And again, for listeners, if you get out around 9 o'clock and... Cut off your flashlights and your car lights. And it's some of these places on the Natchez Trace, you can stay in your car and kind of see them. They're behind the uh, craft center. If you're on the Natchez Trace side instead of Old Rice, or Rice Road, if you're on Natchez Trace side, and um, you pull in there where it says Old Trace, you're right behind the craft center. You can actually stay in your car if you want to, but it's kind of fun to get out and walk across that little pathway and see them. They were there last week, so I think they may still be there, and I know they're still at Cypress Swamp because people saw them last night. But anyway, it's a fun thing to do, and uh, they're kind of, you know, the the hatches start. Of course, they're uh, sparked by... I shouldn't say sparked. I guess I'm getting too many yeah, too many uh, references. But he, they uh, the the fireflies hatch based on how warm it is, and so the southern part of the state is just about finished. Jackson area, we're we're kind of seeing the end of ours. Clinton Nature Centers. We went out there 
uh, night before last, and they they had just a few left. Mm-hmm. But as you go north in the state, they're just starting, and we've had reports that they're in Oxford. So it's a fun thing to get outside and do. And there are lots of other fireflies if you miss the synchronous ones. Okay. And the Ripley's, believe it or not, exhibit is open at the Natural Science Museum, okay. and it's really fun. And don't let the 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 world's largest man is a little scary, evidently, to some kids. Uh, so uh, you might warn your kids there's a really big guy there, and he's he's animatronic, and he, he stands up out of the chair, and I've had some, a little some bit owls. of fright there. Yeah, so, yeah, warning, the, the, the tall man's a little bit scary to small children, but um, it's a really good exhibit, and there are a lot of other things in it that, that um, little kids are liking. As well as older children. Well, and as I said, when you first uh, mentioned that that was going to be there, I thought that does sound like the perfect kind of family uh, exhibit because, you know, kids will be fascinated. But, you know, uh, even someone as old as I am remembers Ripley's Believe It or Not. And so, um, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of science in it, but there's also just incredibly weird things, you know, <laughs> like a um, a car made of a million matchsticks. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's Kind who, of had, who had the patience to do yeah, that? Yeah, somebody had some time on their hands. <laughs> Just worrying that would be a stray spark when you're, you know, you're into the 999,000th match. It, and it, it, uh, it may have been a heavy smoker because it looks like all these matches oh, have burning. been struck. Yeah, so it's not a fire hazard. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, so that's on at the, the Mississippi Museum of uh, Natural Science uh, located in Jackson. We've got an early caller on the line. It's uh, Sue from Beaumont. Looks like it's a pet call for Dr. Major. Go ahead, Sue. Yes, Dr. Major. Uh, before the bird part of the show gets started, I'd like to ask Dr. Major about Turner Classic Movies has had this marathon of Lassie movies, and I, I got to think it's been years since I've seen anyone who had a Lassie dog, type dog, collie. Why, why did they fall out of his favor? Is, is it because they, they're too much to groom, or are they more temperamental than what the movie portrays them, or what happened to collies? That's a good question, and there may be some around. We see a few. We see a few mixed-breed uh, collies. Grooming is an issue with a lot of them. There is a short-coat uh, collie uh, that is not, doesn't have quite the problem that you might have with Lassie, for example, but... Uh, in my opinion, they were excellent dogs. I just haven't seen uh, seen many lately. And some of the listeners may understand or know uh, why they're not as many. But uh, they, you know, they're like a lot of other dogs. They they were bred to be a working dog, a uh, herding dog. And uh, some of that uh, herding uh, dog have, dogs have fallen out of favor because they need things to do. Uh, they don't want to sit around and, and they, they become kind of, uh, psychotic, if you will, if they don't have work to do. So that may be part of the problem. Thanks right. for your call. Yeah, Sue, good to hear from you. Uh, that's a reminder that, and I, I think I mentioned this the other uh, a couple of sh- weeks ago on the show, but you know, do your research uh, before you get a pet because, um, as Dr. Major just alluded to, dogs have different sorts of personalities. Cats have a different sort of personality altogether. And so uh, do some research uh, to make sure that uh, when you buy a pet for you or your family that there's a good match there so you'll have a long, a loving relationship. We've got some open phone lines ready for your questions this morning. We've got a lot to talk about. We'll talk uh, birds with uh, Chris King, the president of the Jackson Audubon Society, Dr. Major on hand, ready to take some pet questions. And we always like to hear your brushes with wildlife, any kind of encounters that you've had uh, when you've out, been out and about. You can give us a call. The phone number is one eight seven seven. 
MPB Ring. It's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. You can email the show. It's animals at mpbonline.org. So, uh, Chris King, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, if you would, remind us again of uh, sort of the mission of the Audubon Society, uh, because it's, a, as I understand, a national organization with, <laughs> with chapters in, in many, in all states, I would guess? Yes. Um, overall, uh, an emphasis on conservation. Um, our chapter works uh, specifically with uh, prothonotary warblers uh, in the Lafleur's Bluff, uh, Bluff State Park area, the uh, Pearl River Wildlife Management area. We've uh, set up nest boxes for uh, prothonotary warblers. So if you're at Lafleur's and you see one of those little golden critters flitting around, um, you have a couple of people within our chapter to thank for that. Uh, Reese and Louise uh, Partridge have been instrumental in that. And the other side to our chapter is uh, to educate and invigorate and ensnare children <laughs> into the conservation effort uh, and bird watching as well. And that's that's the basis for our uh, birding summer camp through uh, Millsaps College. Okay. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. Uh, first of all, how many chapters are in Mississippi for the Audubon Society? Oh, heavens. Um, just round ballpark figure. I want to say five or six, maybe. Okay. So pretty much stretched throughout the entire state. Yeah. Jackson, the Jackson chapter is the largest. Um, I believe we have over 600 members. And they all have wonderful filter-ups, I might add. If you, it's, a, it's a great, safe, wonderful way to get outdoors in Mississippi is to join one of those groups. Absolutely. And uh, I've got a listing of uh, happenings that will be coming up here. I'll, I'll get to that at some point. Okay. Uh, and that's true. You know, Libby, we, we frequently talk about the trails at, behind the museum, and it's, a, you know, a, great to be out in nature, but also we all need all the exercise that we can get. So if you're going to go out walking, why not do something interesting and add a little bird watching or something along those lines mm -hmm. along with it? I get a lot of people email me or ask me when I'm out somewhere, you know, how do I safely get out in the woods? Where can I go? If you live in, in town, I know it's kind of hard sometimes, but... Joining a group like that, the Gym and Mineral Society, any, there are lots of groups around the state that that's their thing is to get people outside. And they love to bring new people out with them. Absolutely. Um, typically, our, our first Saturday bird walks, um, which will be this this coming Saturday, mm -hmm. we'll have one. Um, it's not really uh, exercise driven because it, it takes us about four hours to cover three miles. <laughs> <laughs> But we do get a, a fairly large group of people, and um, we we walk Lafleur's Bluff from one end to the other, uh, seeing what we can come up with. You never know; we will stumble across deer, snakes, um, and just about any kind of bird you can think of. But we've never had any problem with snakes. No, no, snakes are good. <laughs> snakes are good. Um, they typically, just uh, yeah, rough green snakes and things of that nature. Uh, we're going to take our first break this hour. When we get back, we'll continue visiting with our guest, Chris King, who is president of the Jackson Audubon Society. We've got some open phone lines ready for your bird questions, your pet questions, and your brushes with wildlife. Call us at 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. Not near phone, but want to contribute to the program? Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. We'll be back with more after this. An evening of jazz can be just what the doctor ordered. Join me, Meredith Michelle, 
with WJSU's Evening Jazz, 7 to 10 weeknights on MPB Music Radio. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We are visiting today as birds chirping in the background with uh, Chris King, who is president for the Jackson Audubon Society. So um, our producer, Java, tells me those are yellow warblers. Is that uh, okay? They're warbling away there. So it's almost as if they're here with us in the studio. Uh, and I know I don't know what kind of birds they are, but I know I have a couple of birds in my front yard that begin chirping at what to me is a little bit of an early hour. So um, between that and the cat trying to get me up to feed, sometimes I don't sleep well in the morning. If you have a street light, uh, you will have northern mockingbirds and robins singing all night long. And I think I've heard some sort of woodpecker, um, and I'm, he must be doing the the downspouts because it's a sort of a metallic sound. Anything that reverberates and makes a loud sound <laughs> in the springtime, they absolutely love. <laughs> and that seems to drive the cat wild, too, because he can hear it. And I don't know if he can spot where they are a couple of times, but he has fun looking out the window uh, trying to find out where they are. But uh, rest assured, he is an indoor cat, so he just gets to look. He does not get to go out and try to hunt them down. Uh, we've got a caller on the line, so why don't we invite uh, Keith uh, from Gulfport to the show. Good morning, Keith. Go ahead. Hey, good morning. I just wanted to share a wildlife encounter with right. you guys. Uh occurred several years ago in Arizona on the Salt <laughs> River. I was hand grappling for catfish. All right. And uh, as you would know, or most folks that understand hand grappling, on a river, there's bends in the river, and on the bends, big branches hang over. So in order to get to the bank where the catfish lie, you have to swim underneath the branches and then you pop up on the other side and you can feel along the bank so this the i did that i found a nice spot and i figured well there's some trees hanging over here so i go and look behind it so i went under the water and when i popped up on the other side i wiped my eyes out and i was standing there looking at a three-foot beaver oh, with wow. probably three inch big yellow teeth kissing at me and i just had to easily let myself slide back under the water and disappear <laughs> all right so that's my story i just thought i'd share it with you guys all right thanks keith for calling in there some very quick thinking there that's you know uh, but that's a, a good and not another type of i guess advice we to kind of give if you do have a brush with wildlife like that his kind of response i think is sometimes the best is just don't panic but maybe sort of ease away and and enjoy the uh the encounter after it occurs yeah what terry vandevender says take has it four steps backwards whatever <laughs> two steps backwards four steps backwards whatever <clears throat> and and don't make the mistake of anthropomorphizing because wildlife really just does not want to be your friend <laughs> <laughs> yeah don't try to pet that guy yeah we're visiting with uh, Chris King, president of the Jackson Audubon Society. And Chris, you mentioned earlier, let's talk a little bit more about the uh, upcoming birding camp at Millsaps College. This is uh, a project that uh, the Jackson Audubon Society has been engaged in for, I want to say, almost 10 years. Uh, I've been the director of the camp for four or five years now. Um, just the basic rundown, it uh, it runs from June 11th to the 15th uh, from 9.30 in the morning until 1.30 in the afternoon. 
We do this camp in association with Millsaps College. It's on their campus. Uh, we also work very closely with uh, Wild Birds Unlimited in Jackson. And David Sibley, the uh, gentleman that writes the field guides, is involved in it as well. The cost is $110, but we do have scholarships available. Um, the children will receive to keep uh, a good entry-level set of binoculars, right around $110, $120 set of binoculars. And they also get to keep the field guide. Uh, when we first initiated this project, uh, we issued loaner binoculars. And at the end of the class, I had to pull them all back. And it just crushed my spirit <laughs> and to see the kids, you know, some kids get it. Some kids don't. Uh, but the ones that are just on fire for it to take the tools away was, was detrimental. I felt, and we have pounded the pavement and, and rattled the cup and drummed up enough money to, uh, facilitate 12 children. And, the the emphasis being they get to keep these tools to further use them. Um, we invite all kids to come on our field trips and our walks. It is not a, not an adult driven uh, type of project. We love to have the kids out there with us. Um, the ages for the camp are ten to fourteen. Um, I have taken children as young as eight, um, but she was a little wild child that would play with spiders and try to hug snakes and all kinds of things. So, um, you knew she was going to be interested. I did. I met her uh, two weeks beforehand, and she came up to me holding a wolf spider in her hands. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm not exactly uh, spider-oriented. So I knew right then she was, she was going to be uh, a good, good fit for the camp. Um, so what, is the, what do they learn uh, the course of the week? All kinds of things. We we do not water the science down. Uh, we hit them hard with uh, with conservation science, uh, with ornithological science. We teach them how first how to use binoculars because most people have an idea, but they make fundamental mistakes like looking down at the binoculars when they raise them to their eyes, things of that nature. So we fit them with their binoculars, teach them how to use them, take them out into the field. Uh, on the campus of Millsaps, uh, four out of the five days. One day we do a field trip to the floors and teach them how to take field notes, um, how to draw what I call plumage characters. You don't have to be David Sibley in the art department in order to properly sketch a bird. Um, we teach them how to identify birds by sound, uh, which is in the springtime is is definitely something that uh, birders need to learn. More importantly than all of that, we teach them about conservation and about the declining bird numbers. Um, probably 80% of all birds are in decline. And one of the games that we use to teach uh, conservation and that conservation is not just in the United States, we start the children on one side of the room they have to negotiate a series of patches of cloth to the other side of the room. And as they approach a section, a bird might be eaten by a cat. So they're, they're out. Um, there's not enough food. So the last uh, child to arrive on that cloth watch is out of the game. But then when they start to go back, I start removing pieces of cloth. And that simulates uh, the loss of habitat. And it kind of drives home 
because they can only take three steps. And if it takes six steps to get to the next piece of cloth, that habitat being gone is, is uh, spells the demise for some species of birds. Um, we have, uh, this year we'll have Professor Sarah Anglin uh, from Millsaps in, and she's, uh, the I believe, the head of the biology department. She will take them into the lab, show them feathers under a microscope. Uh, she will exhibit uh, all the, the bird skin collection that they have. Um, and all of this uh, culminates uh, in two two points. One, with the building of a bluebird house. If we all leave with the same fingers we arrived with, it's a good day. <laughs> and then, of course, the field trip at Lafleur's Bluff, where we actually take them out in the field and, and they get to see these birds. And uh, it's amazing to watch um, these kids immediately start taking notes if they don't understand what they've seen. Um, we... Um, we also have a representative from the U.S. Fish and Game Wildlife Services out uh, to speak to the kids. It's a action-packed, jammed week. So uh, if someone is interested in possibly signing their child up for it, where do they go for more information? Well, you can go to the Millsaps website. Um, I'll give you the address here. It's a little drawn out. Uh, it is millsaps2ls.edu backslash major hyphen happenings backslash summer hyphen camps dot php <laughs> you can <laughs> abbreviate all that and you can call beverly humphreys at 601-974-1131 and she'll be able to put you in contact with the uh the website or send you registration if and you, need. you can probably google yeah, bird Millsaps bird camp. Yes. 2018 Millsaps bird yeah. camp or something. Millsaps yeah. summer camps will will bring yeah. you to the right page. Okay. Got a caller on the line. Let's say good morning to Jerry, who's called in from Tupelo. You're on the air, Jerry. Go ahead. Good morning, guys. Love the show. Thank you. I have a question this morning about raptors. Um, I guess it was last spring, maybe early summer, and I'm not sure what type of bird it was, but it was I've lived in the country all my life, and I know what hawks look like. But uh, this raptor came in, landed on top of a squirrel nest in one of our oak trees, and wrapped its wings around the nest and was pecking around and stuff. Of course, the squirrels scattered and were barking up the storm. But uh, it was just the biggest raptor I had ever seen outside of a bald eagle. And I'm curious. Uh, it was kind of a brownish copper color and had a yellow beak. I'm wondering if that uh, if that could possibly have been a type of eagle. Uh, I actually live near the reservoir. I'm up in Tupelo on business. It 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 is certainly possible. Uh, however, usually by the time uh, the bill on a bald eagle turns yellow, the, it's it's a mature bird, so you would see the white head. Um, it could be that the yellow that you saw is something we call the sear, which is the skin where the, the actual bill attaches to the skull. Um, what you described is a very common tactic of, of red-tailed hawks. Um, they will skirt those wings, and it basically forms a a little prison <laughs> where uh, said rodent can't escape from. Um, the bird understands that it may not catch the, the prey item on the first uh, go at it and if it's just bouncing around inside the wings then the bird can take its time and, and its success rates much higher what what size do red tail hawks grow up to would you say and weight and 
wingspan. Well, you're talking a couple of kilograms, maybe a four to four foot wingspan. The problem comes in to judge size is a very difficult thing for humans unless you have a known comparison object. Now, if the bird were right next to a robin, then we could say, well, it was at least twice as big as a robin or it was smaller than a robin. There's a known comparison. But we have a very, as humans, we have a very poor track record of of looking at something alone and gauging its size due to the distance uh, that factors in and things of that nature. But they look really big. They do. When they're flying. And, they yeah. do. And um, we uh, had a pair take up residence in Brookhaven right across the street from us. And it seems as though, and my wife can attest to this, when you see them in action, they tend to look a lot bigger. Um, it, it's We're awestruck by what we're seeing, and at that point – um, once we get awestruck, then then our objectiveness starts to erode. <laughs> and I guess so. Talking about eagles, we've just got one species of eagle on right. the reservoir. You'll see the immature or the mature bald eagle, and the male and female pretty much look alike. So that kind of narrows down what they're going to look like. Yeah, but I'm you certainly do see them. For for uh, for hawks and raptors. We got so many squirrels back there. Um, they just swoop down and grab what they want. It's like a drive-by buffet. It's great to watch. Isn't it? It, it is, and that that brings up a good point in that. Um, if you have problems with rodents, please don't use rodent signs. Um, the the chemicals in there, uh, warfarin. Uh, once the rat ingests that. Uh, if a raptor catches that rat and eats that rat, uh, they have ingested the warfarin and then they will die. So now we have uh, we have four dogs and three cats. So we don't use any type of chemical. Yeah, well, I've got a healer, so if there's any rodent anywhere within a hundred miles, he's got it taken care of. <laughs> All right. Hey, Jerry, thanks for your call. Good to hear from you this morning. Uh, Let's take another break. When we get back, we'll continue visiting with our guest today, Chris King, who is president of the Jackson Audubon Society. So any kind of bird questions, pet questions for Dr. Major, or any encounters with wildlife that you want to share with us, give us a call because the phone lines are open at 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464. We'll be back with more after this. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield's retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. We're visiting today with the president of the Jackson Audubon Society, Chris King. So we've been talking a little bit about birds. Uh, We had a couple of pet questions and some uh, wildlife stories. And so we've got some open phone lines ready for your input this morning. The number is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can email the show, animals at mpbonline.org. Uh, so, Chris, one of the annual things uh, that's done each year is the Christmas bird count. Uh, if you would, give us a quick reminder of what that is and, and how it turned out uh, this last uh, Christmas. Well, um, it's a, an annual count that's done worldwide um, somewhere around Christmas time. 
Um, the history of it is at at, uh, at one point in our country's history, there was done what's called a bird, a Christmas bird shoot, mm-hmm. where the object was just shoot as many birds as you can. And I don't have the gentleman's name committed to memory, but someone came up with the idea of, well, why don't we just count them instead of shoot them? And it's taken off, and it, it happens every year. Um, I, I think ours typically runs the, the Saturday after Christmas. Um, but it is a 17-mile circle, and it, the circle remains the same uh, throughout the count's history. And it's divided into sectors, and you don't have to have any birding experience at all. We compare you with an experienced birder. We go out into our uh, proposed sectors. We do our counts. Uh, we from daylight to dark. I think the last um, the last count I started at four o'clock in the morning for owls, hmm. and um, counted my owls, and then went back to sleep until everyone else <laughs> arrived. And then we did our count. Um, then we get together for a tally supper, and uh, everyone talks about what they've seen in their particular areas. The the major find that we had this year was that uh, our duck counts were through the floor. They were just almost non-existent. Hmm. And that has borne itself out that uh, I haven't seen hardly that first wood duck this year. So really? it's, yeah, yeah. It's it's been an issue. Um, now that can be something as simple as a, a migrational pattern change or something of that nature. There, the, the birds are there, just not where we had them last year. And I, I think that's one of the the uh, values that we talked about the Christmas bird count before is that because it's been going on for so long, you can kind of look at maybe longer stretches of time, maybe not year to year, but longer stretches of time for maybe trends of, of one thing or another. And that's that's the buzzword right there. It is a very wonderful device for, for tracking trends, uh, population declines, things of that nature. An occasional downward spike like we had with ducks this year. It'll be remedied next year. We'll be overflowing with ducks. Um, but as we see numbers rise and fall, um, that over a long period of time, that's that's the data that ornithologists are interested in. We have ornithologists all over the world that use that, uh, our Christmas bird count, that use eBird, uh, which is another thing that we have the children do. Uh, the kids at the camp participate in a citizen science program called eBird, which works through Cornell University, and they actually log their sightings into a database, which is accessible for ornithologists all over the world. Hmm. That must be exciting for them to be able to participate in, you know, something that of that scope. That sounds like a lot of fun. And and boy, when you talked about that camp, that uh, those kids are going to be worn out by the end of that week. That's for sure. I don't know about the kids, but I take a vacation afterwards every year. <laughs> Back to the phone lines we go. Start again in South Haven. Gary's on the line. Good morning, Gary. Go ahead, please. Good morning to you all. Good morning. Uh, several years ago, uh, a good friend of mine wanted to bring his daughter turkey hunting with us. She, she just had an interest in all things hunting. She was about 10. And so uh, I brought her out to our land, and I get us all situated early in the morning, and we're all up against uh, uh, several close trees. Everything is just picturesque. You can hear the turkeys start to gobble. Uh, never got the turkeys to come in, but what did come in is down towards the end of the the dirt road we were set off of, I see Pepsi with you making his round, <laughs> just scooting back and forth over the trail. And I, now, I'm trying to be like a conservationist. I'm trying to teach and mentor her. And I'm like, look at the majestic skunk 
And, you know, we're all camoed up, and and I'm talking about the skunk and, you know, what they eat and how they behave. And little by little, that skunk kept getting closer to us. And uh, I just knew eventually he would go away. And he got to the point where now we can't get away. (laughs) And uh, I whispered down to Emma. I said, Emma, honey, whatever you do, don't move. And that skunk came right up to us and smelled that little girl's boot and then just turned around and walked off. Now, our hearts were just beating out of our chest. I looked down at that little girl. I said, Emma, you can come up with me anytime you want. <laughs> and she's a grown-up now. She's through college and everything. But every time I see her, we laugh about that every day. All right. What a wonderful story. You know, that's an example of when not to take those four steps backwards. <laughs> if yeah, it's a skunk, right. just stand still. All right. So apparently camo works for all animals. Okay. <laughs> hey, Gary, good. thanks for sharing that story with us. Let's uh, move on. Next, we've got... Craig, who's called in from Biloxi. You're on the air, Craig, so go ahead, please. Okay, uh, I'd like to know if there's a good way to scare off uh, predatory birds from from chickens, or or do they need to be fenced in? Well, the best thing I can tell you is to to have a covered area for the chicken to escape from, uh, or to. Um, Typically, uh, what we would do out in the Midwest is we would set up a very low... Um, sheet of corrugated tin and maybe three foot off the ground and that would give the chickens a place to uh, retreat to uh, and they're pretty good about spotting aerial predators um, the problem comes in when you have something like a cooper's hawk um, who their hunting strategy is a little bit different um, they're kind of the stealth fighter of the bird world and they will come in low and fast and um, if you have birds of any size uh, on your property, you're going to have a Cooper's hawk. And it is very difficult to defend against them. Um, there's really, as far as a Cooper's hawk taking a bird the size of a chicken, um, it can happen. Um, and again, if there's, if you can just build a structure for them to hide under, chances of the bird being successful are lessened. Um, but there is no 100% way to, to protect your bird short of a, a complete caged in fence. Complete. Okay. Uh, if you have like a wire mesh overhead, will that bird crash? In, you know, will the hawk or whatever crash into it or will he see that? <laughs> well, uh, ox, uh, the Cooper's hawks are, are a family of bird called, uh, acceptors. And one of the thing about occipiters is they they leap before they think. Um, we used to get occipiters into our hospital um, continually that would have a stick protruding from uh, an eye socket where they had crashed into a, a, a bush going after a small bird. And they survive quite well with one eye, but that the point being these birds don't, don't think they're going so fast that the, what it would take by the time they saw the, um, the fence to correct, to avoid it, they can't. Um, so there's definitely a chance that, uh, if, if you put up some cross wire or something above them, that, uh, you could certainly, uh, cause the bird to crash. 
You could possibly put some flags or ribbons or something on top of it. Might help. It might. It yeah. might. But but okay. typically these birds become very focused, uh, and um, we actually, my wife and I, had one chase a dove and crash into our patio door one yeah. day. Um, so that's something as large as a house. And he had no idea. Uh, doves yeah. are fantastic flyers, and the dove took him straight towards it, and then hooked a left, and <laughs> that was that was the end of him. Um, so it is a very difficult thing to defend against, uh, uh, as Doctor Major said. You know, some type of m- object that moves uh, may certainly uh, may certainly help. I'll always remember uh, doves. Of course, you know, are pretty good. At- escape on the other hand mm-hmm. the cooper's hawk probably is, takes a lot of them and they'll go through the trees you know they don't they don't just sit up high but i'll always remember that uh one of the doves flew into the window uh the back door didn't kill it but it left a perfect powder angel print on the window yeah. i mean it was just like the best angel you ever saw i've our, seen our, that too yeah our I cooper's think, hawk did yeah. the same thing to our yeah, yeah. door yeah. Where, where can we take injured uh predatory birds i caught one years ago and uh i had to flag down a canine unit and he was afraid of the hawks and uh watch out for the towns they will get you rightfully so um once again wildlife does not want to be your friend they don't know you're trying to help them um if you're in the jackson area um the the jackson zoo has a technician there that works uh i I, dr majors do you know the gentleman donna Yes, yes, yes. Donna Todd, and yeah. and she works with uh, one of the veterinarians in town. Right. Um, so, I, I rescued a red-tailed hawk when I first moved to uh, Mississippi, and that's what we did. We took it to Donna, and she she got him back on back right. to health and and released him. Yeah, in Ocean Springs, there, Mississippi, there's a wildlife reserve where where he ended up, but I didn't find out till the next day where he where he went. Mm-hmm. You can also uh, do a Google search for wildlife rehabilitators, and uh, there's a state list of uh, state-approved wildlife rehabilitators that uh, are licensed. All right, uh, Craig, appreciate your call this morning. Let's get one uh, email in here before the next break, and this is a pet question uh, from John who says, I have a golden a golden doodle. It's almost three years old. He won't drink water from his bowl. Instead, he only drinks from our saltwater pool. He swims around drinking and then gets out. I really don't mind him swimming. He's a water dog, but is it harmful to him? And uh, if it is, how should he possibly stop the uh, behavior? Wow. Good question. I mean, he's going to go back in that pool. It's, uh, I would say that probably he's not going to hurt himself by uh, drinking you know, some of the water. A lot of the dogs do that. Probably less damage from that than they would from the chlorine pool. Uh, Quickly, an interesting story. Y'all all heard the Laurel and uh, Yanni mm-hmm. story. Right. Somebody typed in Labradoodle and Golden Doodle, and guess what came back? Mutt. <laughs> 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 so, so anyway, but I, I, I doubt if that's going to hurt. The, I doubt if that's going to hurt the dog. Okay. Very good. Let's uh, take one final break this hour. When we get back, we'll wrap things up. We've been visiting today throughout the hour with Chris King, who is president of the Jackson Audubon Society. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield is the retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. 
We're visiting today with the president of the Jackson Audubon Society, Chris King. Uh, we do have another email here, a pet question that says, my dogs are chewing frequently, can't figure out the cause. They're given uh, topical flea tick meds monthly, plus they have a Soresto collar for added tick protection since we live in the country. I have numerous dogs, so food allergy would probably not be the cause. Many years ago, I had a little dog that had spring grass allergies. Could that be a likely cause for this behavior at this time of the year? According to what they said, they have more than one dog that are chewing and and right. biting on the you know, it probably is an allergy of some sort. Uh, if they're adult dogs, chances of uh, things like demodectic mange and sarcoptic mange would be slim but possible. Uh, I would say that uh, hopefully they've talked to their veterinarian about this. In my opinion, probably it's not a food-related uh, issue. It may be related to the environment, though, with grass and this sort of thing, and it may be more seasonal than not. Uh, there are a lot of dogs that itch and chew, and uh, there are varying things that can be done, but uh, it would be interesting to know and also to know if they've contacted their veterinarian. All right. Um, let me just hand me a note here, and this is interesting because, you know, how on Facebook you get things from past years, and I have had several things show up on my timeline about me holding snakes. Yes. So it's good to know that Snake Day at the Mississippi uh, Museum of Natural Science is Tuesday, June 5th. Uh, Terry Vendeventer, a guest uh, frequently on the show, will hear. He'll do a lecture at 10 and noon. Kids' activities with reptiles and amphibians throughout the day. Uh, and also, um, you always get to see uh, snakes up close. I remember the one the one year that I went there, uh, there was a whole big, long line of snakes. You can see little tiny snakes, giant snakes. Uh, so it, it's interesting to me. And I was talking to a friend of mine about that. And it's I think there are some people that just understand that snakes are beneficial and that sort of thing, but they just don't like snakes. And so, um, you know, the idea to hold one or anything like that is, is not going to go. But I thought it was a lot of fun. And uh, when we've had snakes in studio, it is amazing. They're very, very interesting uh, creatures. Yeah, it's really a good opportunity to expose your kids to snakes and find out if they like them or not, I guess. Uh, so, Chris, you mentioned that each month uh, the Jackson Audubon Society has a, a bird walk or, a, you know, a, a bird-watching uh, get-together. If someone is maybe joining for the first time, has never been bird-watching, um, first of all, what, what sort of clothing? I guess comfortable clothing? What else uh, would you recommend? Well, I, with the heat here, uh, certainly uh, dress as cool as possible. LaFleur's Bluff does have a very dense population of mosquitoes. So uh, if you are one that uses repellents of any type, that's advisable. Um, a good hat. Uh, that sun gets hot after a while, uh, especially on us guys that uh, are lacking <laughs> hair up top. But um, you really don't need any experience. You don't need your uh, to have your own binoculars. You don't need to run out and buy a pair of binoculars. Um, you can call, uh, call, actually contact me at 850-232-8219 and I can bring in a loaner pair of binoculars for you. Now, June will, uh, be our last walk, uh, until we begin again, um, in September. Uh, so July and August, it's, it's just too hot. Too hot. Hot and um, lots of mosquitoes. Yeah, lots of mosquitoes. Um, and, and two, the birds uh, are starting to calm down a little bit. Migration is over. Uh, nesting is uh, in full swing. Uh, they're not singing as much. They're busy raising uh, chicks, feeding, that type of thing. Um, 
Now, it it late uh, summer, early fall does become a challenge for birders because then you get all the juvenile birds in different uh, cryptic plumage, uh, camouflage type of plumage, uh, versus the the brighter adults. And you know, we 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 as I tell the kids, um, why would you think that babies need to be camouflaged? Well, because they're not too smart. They don't know when to fly away from predators. Uh, case in point, we had an eastern towhee fly down to our feeder as my wife and I were in the backyard uh, last night. And he, Hi, how are you? It's a good thing he was camouflaged because if he wasn't, uh, my little healer probably would have. <laughs> well, um, and two, uh, again, that will start up in, in uh, September again. Uh, our June walk is this Saturday. If anybody would like to to come, we meet at Lafleur's Bluff at the Mays Lake entrance um, at 8 a.m. And the walk is typically three to four hours. Uh, you don't have to go the whole gamut if you want. Just walk as long as you feel comfortable. Yeah, if you need to to come in late, you can usually get on that trail, go the Mays Lake entrance, and and find them. So don't worry if you're going to be. 30 minutes late or right as i said we're it's not a, a thing uh-huh. to do for exercise it it typically takes us uh about three hours to cover three miles so yeah we will walk down the purple trail which skirts uh the river and um just listen for a gaggle of people mm-hmm. um we also have a quarterly meeting coming up uh on august 28th we're going to have who is our speaker Richard Rummel, uh, he's the black bear coordinator and exotic animal coordinator with Mississippi Department of Wildlife. And he's going to be giving us an update on uh, the black bears in Mississippi. And that uh, will take place at the Clinton Community Nature Center on August 28th at 6 p.m. Dr. Sarah Hammond runs the nature center out there, and she does a wonderful job. Um. And we have a field trip. Our we're again field trips. We take a hiatus during the hottest uh, months. Um, we on August twenty fifth, we will do something in the little special. It's called a sundowner trip, uh, where we will go to uh, St. Catharines at Natchez, St. Catherine Creek National Wildlife Refuge, and we meet about four p.m. And we drive around the refuge bird a little bit, and then we congregate at uh, an area called the swamp. And we sit and we wait on the birds to come to us. Mm. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Sometimes as many as, you know, 10,000 wood storks flying overhead. Mm. It's It can be a, a spectacle for mm. sure. Okay. Uh, let's get one final call in this hour, and that's uh, our friend Kathleen from Osaka. Good morning, Kathleen. Hi. I love this show. You have so many kids going out in the summertime that they're not used to being out. If if they could, always try to get them to go not alone with one or more friends. Make sure they have a cell phone that's charged up, or in case they lose their signal, please try to see. I know it's a little back old school, they call it, but try to get them to read a compass so they can at least learn what direction they walked in and what direction they walked out. They need to be careful. Wear long sleeve shirts, even if they're light, because you get thorns and things like that and mosquitoes, and make sure they spray their feet with insect repellent uh, over the socks and tuck their pants legs in the socks. Just being a mom, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all have a good trip, and I hope the kids enjoy your, your features that you have. All right. Thanks for calling, uh, Kathleen.
So uh, almost out of time, but I do want to remind folks of the Millsaps College Burning Camp uh, that Chris told us about. Again, it's June 11th through the 15th uh, for children aged 10 to 14 years old and just an action-packed, lot of fun things to do, but also a good some good science and learning about conservation. And if you just Googled uh, Millsaps College uh, 2018 Burning Camp or Summer Camps Millsaps College, uh, you should be able to find uh, the information to sign up for that. And uh, Chris, uh, just a general uh, website for the uh, Jackson Audubon Society? It is jacksonaudubonsociety.org. However, we are making a transition in right now. It is under construction. So that website will be up and running within the next month or so. Bookmark that for future reference then. That's going to wrap us up for today. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, Think Radio, funding provided in part by Wildlife Mississippi, a statewide organization celebrating its 20th year of conserving Mississippi's lands, waters, and wildlife, and from contributions from listeners like you. Our show's produced by Jabba Chapman. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, Chris King, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned. Up next, it's MPB's Season Pass, and we'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts that's heard only on MPB Think Radio.